Shifting borders. Welcome to Shifting Borders. Fronteras movidizas. A podcast series by Princeton University students about how the forces of nationalism and identity shape people around the world. I'm series host, Luke Maurer. And over the next five episodes, I'll be introducing you to Princeton classmates who've reported and produced stories that include the weaponization of headscarves, the erasure of inconvenient history, and the awkward dance of adjustment between refugees and the societies taking them in. Today's episode, episode four, is called With Friends Like These, and it's about the alliances we make when we're trying to survive. I'll turn it over to the hosts for this episode, Deb J. Swall and Isha Mittal. Thanks, Luke. I'm Deb J. Swall. And I'm Isha Mittal. Today, we're going to talk about alliances. They matter a lot when you're an immigrant or a small country. These alliances can open doors for you. They can protect you. They can make you feel at home. Nationalism can totally rewire these relationships. We're going to start with a story from Deb that takes place in southeastern Europe. And from what I understand, Dev, it's a place with a pretty complicated history. That's right. Kosovo used to be a republic in a country called Yugoslavia, which broke apart very violently in the 1990s. Kosovo fought a war for independence against Serbia, another former republic of Yugoslavia. In 1999, NATO bombed Serbia to help Kosovo. And Serbia has never recognized Kosovo. To this day, Kosovo is still subsidized by the United States and the European Union. Then the pandemic comes along, and what happens? Do Kosovo's Western friends step in to help? That's what I wanted to find out. So I called up Dr. Lul Raka. He's like Kosovo's version of Dr. Fauci. And he's been worried about how the coronavirus will affect Kosovo since he first heard about the outbreak in Wuhan, China. Chinese officials trying hard to contain the virus are now extending an unofficial lockdown to China's vast rural areas. Dr. Raka remembers nervously watching the news from Kosovo, Europe's newest country and one of its poorest. After a couple of weeks, we realized that we are going to, to cope with, with a pandemic. It will definitely come also to our, our continent and we have to, to, to face it. By March 2020, the pandemic was raging in Europe, especially Italy. Today's figures take the number of deaths here just below that of China, the worst. Many of Kosovo's citizens work in Italy, some as doctors. There was concern about exposure, and if that happened, Dr. Rocca could already foresee the problems Kosovo would face. Since 1999, since the war, the healthcare system was underfinanced, and uh, governmental expenditures in health are lowest in Europe. The other challenge is that we don't still have a health insurance system. New doctors, my best students, are leaving the country for Western Europe, mainly for Germany. Kosovo also didn't have enough medical equipment, like ventilators, and not nearly enough ICU beds. In Germany, in 100,000 inhabitants, they have 35 ICU beds. Whereas in Kosovo, there is only 1.5 ICU bed in 100,000. Dr. Raka began appearing on news programs, imploring that Kosovo's citizens take preventive measures, wear masks, 
wash hands, keep distance, travel only when absolutely necessary. The same advice we've been hearing from the Centers for Disease Control and the World Health Organization. Based on information I have, I give uh, advices how to avoid it, how to prevent it. Dr. Raka also had to manage Kosovo's turbulent politics. The country's government fell apart under pressure from the Trump administration. Then, Kosovo's president was indicted on war crimes. Amid that chaos, Dr. Raka was also getting death threats. Yet he still kept appearing on the news programs day in and day out, trying to convince his fellow citizens to stay vigilant against infection. At least the politicians listened to him and other scientists. The majority of decisions that had been taken by government were driven by consultations from experts of the field of public health. So they were scientifically based, evidence-based, which was good. Uh, through support from donors, uh, U.S., European Union, World Bank, we enrolled uh, some new doctors and residents and nurses in hospitals. But waves of infection still battered this small nation. There were plenty of bad times, like when the country ran out of supplementary oxygen or when the hospitals ran out of space. Mene Muharemi, a nurse, says Kosovo's healthcare workers on the ground tried to cope. She works in a maternity ward where many expectant mothers were coming in already infected. So due to this need, uh, the gynecology department created a specific sector for COVID patients. Now, um, pregnant ladies who come in and they know that they have COVID, they get um, transferred to that part. They're not mixed with the other patients. Political instability was another problem. Last year, lawmakers ousted a popular prime minister, disliked by the Trump administration. Political analyst Agon Malici says that that action left a power void. A government was voted down and then another one came in place without elections, with a very, very thin majority in parliament, uh, unable to pass any massive legislation needed uh, to manage the pandemic, especially on the economic side. By summer, the people of Kosovo, like everyone else in the world, had grown tired of lockdowns. The number of infections and deaths spiked, though Kosovo was still doing better than most of the West. Then came news of a major breakthrough, highly effective coronavirus vaccines. Pfizer and Moderna showing positive results, more than a dozen potential vaccines around the world now in human trials. Dr. Raka, Kosovo's chief epidemiologist, was thrilled. He returned to Kosovo's news programs with more talking points. There is no better weapon in the history of mankind than vaccination. Don't hesitate to take vaccines. It saves millions of lives. But actually getting those vaccines to Kosovo would be far harder than Dr. Raka imagined. Okay, I feel like we need to jump in here and talk about why it's so hard for poor countries to get vaccines. We know vaccines are expensive. Exactly. And Kosovo doesn't have the money to buy many doses. 40% of people in Kosovo live below the poverty line. So how does a low-income country get coronavirus vaccines? 
There is this program called COVAX. Um, it's a partnership of several big organizations, including the World Health Organization, the Global Vaccine Alliance, and the United Nations Children's Fund, UNICEF. Rich countries pay into COVAX to secure vaccines for their own populations, but are also supposed to subsidize vaccines for poor countries. And has that happened? Not really. Rich countries like the U.S. and Canada, as well as the European Union, have purchased most of the supplies, far more shots than they need. These rich countries are hoarding vaccines, and critics are calling this vaccine nationalism. Just what we needed in a pandemic. More nationalism and more inequality. What about China and Russia? They're producing their own vaccines and setting up supply chains to countries where they have good political relationships. Uh, in Europe, those countries include Kosovo's arch enemy, Serbia. And who is Kosovo's back? The West is supposed to have Kosovo's back, the United States and the European Union. But remember, they're hoarding the vaccines. That's got to be hard for Kosovo. Definitely. It's a country that relies so much on the West. And according to a Gallup survey, Kosovo is the most pro-American country in the world. But a global pandemic can really test a friendship. Big time. Let's hear how the story turns out. Wildly uneven and unfair, that's how the UN describes the distribution of COVID vaccines around the world. As rich nations scramble to buy up as much of the supply, many places are left out entirely. Dr. Raka's heart sank as he watched the news. Rich countries, including Kosovo's closest allies, were hoarding vaccines. Some estimates showed that residents of low-income countries like Kosovo wouldn't get vaccinated fully until 2024. We are aware that everybody wants to cover, first of all, his house and then help other countries. And we are desperately looking forward to receive support in vaccines, uh, mainly from the United States, but also from the European Union. They also promise that Western Balkan countries will not be alone. Kosovo's best option for securing vaccines was COVAX, an international vaccine equity campaign. COVAX buys vaccines as an independent entity and distributes them freely to the world's 92 poorest countries. But COVAX can't get enough vaccines because of vaccine nationalism. Rich countries have to realize that we will be safe when everybody in this world is safe. It's not only a local or national challenge, it's a global challenge. As Kosovo waited on its Western allies to come through, its neighbor and arch-enemy Serbia was negotiating its own vaccine supplies. The Serbian government secured some doses from Pfizer, Moderna, and Johnson & Johnson. It also bought doses of AstraZeneca from India before a devastating wave in the South Asian country shut down exports. But most of Serbia's vaccine supply came from its allies, Russia and China, who have blocked Kosovo from UN membership. Serbian foreign policy has been largely about uh, balancing and playing uh, various external great powers against each other. So diversification of partnerships by trying not to put all your eggs uh, in a single basket. This is Vuk Vuksanovic, a Serbian foreign policy expert and researcher at the London School of Economics. 
So unlike most of its neighbors, which invested their hopes in the EU and COVAX, Serbia, once they saw that the EU itself was underperforming on vaccine procurement, they started to invoke some of their other partnerships. And China has been the most prolific one as far as the sheer amount of the vaccine doses which have been supplied. Is there any concern in Serbia that the Chinese vaccine hasn't been approved by the European Medicines Agency or the U.S. Food and Drug Administration? They are not that concerned because uh, I think that there is a strong um, factor of psychological fatigue and aspirations for this to end. So they and people want to get any vaccine which is uh, available. But I also think that a factor is also the way um, Serbian uh, political leadership communicates with its uh, own public and society about China. Most of the media are either um, government-owned or uh, government-friendly, so a critical narrative on uh, China will, uh, will not come to the surface. Serbia's president, Aleksandar Vucic, got China's Sinopharm vaccine himself in April. TV reporters clicked away as a nurse sunk a needle with a second dose of the vaccine into his arm. How do you feel? How do you feel? I feel great. Great. Serbia even secured enough vaccines to offer doses to so-called vaccine tourists. Mine Muharemi, the nurse in Kosovo, says she applauds arch-enemy Serbia for how it's handled COVID-19 vaccine procurement. I'm very glad that at least Serbia has, Serbia and Serbia's president has managed to vaccinate its own people. Every president needs to take care of its own population. That's the bottom line. She blames Kosovo's politicians for the delay in vaccines. One of the main causes for the delay in vaccination in Kosovo is the, the political situation. Because especially during the COVID time, uh, our government has changed like three times. So due to that, we don't have a clear plan and we never had a clear plan from the beginning till the end because the government changed every time. Dr. Raka says Kosovo's messy politics can only be blamed so much for the lack of a vaccine procurement plan. He says that the stipulation of following Western policies on vaccine approval has backfired on his country. Our approach is not to use vaccines that have not been approved by European Medicine Agency or FDA, let's say. The Chinese and Russian vaccines both fell into this category at the time, unapproved by a Western medical agency. Dr. Raka adds that many in Kosovo likely wouldn't take the vaccines if they were available. More recently, he's been hearing troubling reports about rising skepticism of all coronavirus vaccines. We are working with media to increase the percentage of people, convincing them that this is the best solution to finish that long way of back to normal. Because if we are going to refuse vaccination, we are going to have COVID here for a longer period of time. But first, the vaccines had to get to Kosovo. And in late March, the first batch finally arrived by plane. About 24,000 doses of AstraZeneca, care of COVAX. It was a major news event, with a phalanx of photojournalists clicking away at the boxes of vaccines as they were being unloaded from the plane.
The first person vaccinated was Kosovo's prime minister, Alben Kurti. He was the same guy that was forced out a year ago in part by the Trump administration. His party won big in elections earlier this year. Kurti is a nationalist who has even hinted at Kosovo uniting with Albania, the one country that's really helped Kosovo during the pandemic. He told Euronews that there's only one country whose help he will not accept. We are not uh, going to get vaccines from Serbia who gets vaccines from Russia and China, you know, uh, both uh, in terms of values and interests. Uh, our orientation is elsewhere. It's towards the West. Agon Malici, the political analyst in Kosovo, says the pandemic has tested Kosovo's alliances with the West. You're kind of getting to see who your friends are or how reliable these partnerships are. We'll have to wait until the West gets fully vaccinated. Dr. Raka, the country's top epidemiologist, is still holding out hope that at least the U.S., which helped establish Kosovo as an independent nation, will come through. You know, there's even a love song to the U.S. from Kosovo. During the difficult times, you always look at the hand of your friends. And so there is a very, very strong connection between Kosovo and the United States. President Biden has also some personal connection with Kosovo. Dr. Raka is referring to the Joseph R. Bo Biden III National Highway. Kosovo dedicated this highway to the president's late son, Bo, in 2016, the year after he died of cancer. Bo had served at a U.S. military base near the highway. After an emotional ceremony, Joe Biden, then vice president, thanked the people of Kosovo. For the friendship that you have shown to me personally and to the Biden family generally. Dr. Raka is hoping President Biden remembers the USA's best friend is waiting. You are the lifesaver. That's good stuff, Dev. Thanks, Isha. We've been talking about how nationalism affects friendships. In Kosovo, these friendships ended up closing doors. But what if nationalism can open doors? Isha, you've reported a pretty fascinating story about that very question. Yeah, that's right. It's a story about a refugee in Sweden named Nima Golem Alipor, and he's a refugee from Iran. His family fled Iran's Islamist revolution when he was just five. He remembers lots of protests and unrest, just like we're hearing in this news footage from 1979. Wow, that sounds intense. How'd the family get out of Iran? Well, they fled to Turkey first. Then, over there, they went to the local United Nations refugee office. They applied for refugee status and waited to see what country would accept them. A year later, Nima's family learned they were going to Sweden. (laughs) 
We came to this uh, little village. It was called Musipan, and we went into the house, and everything was ready. Like they had a fridge with food, and they had furniture. Everything was ready. Nima doesn't remember much, but knows that they stayed at this village for less than a year. Then the family moved to Malmo. A city on the southern coast of Sweden, across the sea from Denmark. So it's a border city. It's a nice city, like uh, you have everything here. Malmo is known for its many parks, its cobblestone streets, and the fact that a little less than half of its population are immigrants. Malmo's tourist office says at least 100 languages are spoken in the city. On any given street, you might find a falafel stand, a Syrian roasted nut shop, or an Iranian restaurant. And there's a vibrant music scene, led by immigrant artists like Taraband, whose lead singer, Nadine Al-Khalidi, was born in Iraq. Malmo seems like the ideal place for a refugee family. Nima recalls growing up in a neighborhood where nearly everyone was an immigrant. So I didn't feel that I was, like, from another country. Uh, but it's segregated, and uh, migrants live in some areas, and uh, ethnic Swedes live in other areas, and poor people live in some areas, and, you know, rich people in some areas. So it's very segregated. While he was growing up, Nima rarely left his neighborhood. He says he never sensed what the segregation meant. He says he was happy. But 380 miles northeast, in Sweden's capital, Stockholm, Another immigrant was coming to a different conclusion. Jag heter Alexandra Pascalido. Jag är journalist, programledare. Okay, so my name is Alexandra Pascalido and I am a journalist, author, radio and TV hostess, playwright. Alexandra says that the most important work she does is advocate for human rights. She explains why. I came to Sweden when I was six. I was um, a working class kid from a dysfunctional family. And I grew up in the most stigmatized suburb in Sweden, where like 95% of the inhabitants are like migrants and refugees. Alexandra's from Greece. She grew up in a suburb of Stockholm called Rinkeby. She says Swedes call Rinkeby a ghetto. Uh, I mean, media came visiting us and they were just writing all these terrible articles about us portraying us like criminals like uh, burdens like parasites like you know like problems for the swedish societies she calls this racism alexandra says children growing up in rinkeby are ashamed to talk about where they're from and they lived like 10 people in a in a three-bedroom apartment and the parents might be, un- might be unemployed and the parents don't even know the language so they can help the kids. So imagine when these kids will meet the other Swedish kids from nice areas where they don't even have migrant kids. Imagine that clash. And Alexandra experienced this clash firsthand. When she was just 18, she told a Greek journalist in Stockholm that she could not accept how Rinkeby residents were underestimated and ignored. She's saying, I want to prove to the Swedes, to my parents, and especially to myself, that I will accomplish something, that I will become something, even though I'm an immigrant in a difficult situation. Masood Kamali says this feeling of immigrants having to prove something never goes away in Sweden. It's not like U.S. It's not, uh, you know, uh, 
you have citizenship, you are part of this country. Like Nima Golam Alipur, whom we met at the beginning of the story, Masood Kamali is also a refugee from Iran. He arrived in Sweden 30 years ago, excelled at school, and became a professor. Yet he says that's not enough to feel Swedish. You all the time, always, you are the other. What Kamali is describing sounds familiar to Marin Estefanos, an Eritrean Swede. She's a journalist who also advocates for the rights of refugees from Eritrea, one of the world's most repressive countries. Her work is internationally known, and she's been featured in more than 10 documentaries, including The Sound of Torture. Dear listeners, this is Marin Estefanos, broadcasting from Stockholm, Sweden. Voices of Eritrean Refugees. Yet she says she's practically invisible in Sweden. It's shocking, you know, when you see the recognition that you have all over the world and, and the only place that refuses to give you that recognition is in your home country. It's a bit, uh, <laughs> it's shocking. Masoon Kamali, the professor from before, says this feeling of discrimination is actually backed up by data. He led a government study between 2004 and 2006 that revealed structural discrimination in multiple areas, including the labor market, housing, and the political and judicial systems. Back in Malmo, Nima finally saw these barriers when he graduated from college and tried to get a job. When I, when I didn't find a job, I was like thinking, like, how can that be? But instead of wanting to fight the system, like Masood Kamali and Alexander Pascalidou, he decided to try to understand it. His first step was to join a political party. The Sweden Social Democrats, a progressive party, had links to Malmo, making it more accessible to Nima. This was one of the first times he worked in a group that included both foreign-born and ethnic Swedes. He noticed that the ethnic Swedes often had a cultural and social advantage. So Native has his network there, a, a supporting system. When you, as a migrant, you have a long road in front of you. Nima says that he's being practical when he says multiculturalism cannot exist in Sweden. There's one Swedish culture, he claims, that has the networks and the ins. And those migrants who are in Sweden need to adapt and assimilate to get in. His time at the Sweden Social Democrat Party also led him to believe that Sweden didn't have a handle on migration long before 2015, when more than a million migrants arrived in Europe in what Europe still calls the refugee crisis. You saw that the schools uh, couldn't manage it and um, they didn't have housing. They, they weren't prepared at all. He says he also noticed that some immigrants in his hometown, Malmo, were openly anti-Semitic. Others promoted political Islam. Nima wrote op-eds criticizing this. This created tension between him and the Social Democrats. Then, in 2013, came the breaking point. The Social Democrats elected Omar Mustafa, the leader of a prominent Islamic organization, to the party's governing board. When Omar Mustafa was the chairman for the Islamic Association in Sweden, he invited uh, homophobic uh, persons uh, to Sweden. 
uh, and people who are hostile against women. And, and I just couldn't get it together how uh, a party that, uh, you know, was social democratic could uh, put such a person in its board. How did that make you feel? I felt that everything that our opponents were saying about the party, that it was a party that was uh, trying to court political Islam here in Sweden, that all that was true. He left the Social Democrats in protest. Mustafa was forced to resign a few days later due to links with anti-Semitism, but Nima couldn't go back. He'd gone to the newspapers to voice his resentment against the Social Democrats, and that was seen as treachery. So he decided to spend the next few months writing opinion articles. So my writings, they were much influenced by like what I had uh, experienced in my life. You know, I come from a country where political Islam has uh, devastated the country. I also live in a segregated area still. Like I, I haven't moved like, because I like living there too. And I, I have been like part of this uh, migration that when people uh, came here, they didn't get so much help. His articles caught the attention of a political party with completely different views than the progressive party where he'd spent years working. This other party was the Sweden Democrats, an anti-immigrant far-right group with early roots in white nationalism. The Sweden Democrats is now the country's third largest party, and its support is growing. They liked Nima's articles, but he was skeptical at first. You had heard about the Sweden Democrats like through media, and it was all negative stuff. Then party leader Jimé Akasson asked to meet him. Nima waited at a cafe. Can you describe like what it felt like when you went to that meeting? What were you thinking before you met this guy? I was very nervous. <laughs> like yeah. I was, I was like looking out of the, the window of the bus, just uh, seeing if there was a sign that told me to uh, return home. Nima says he found the controversial Akasan to be, quote, a normal person. And the two men agreed on an issue that had become important to Nima, what he viewed as the failure of multiculturalism. You can't have a society where everybody lives in their own culture because some people stay behind then instead of becoming a part of a society and, and like moving on with their lives. And some people get isolated in a static culture that they have from their home country. In that way, some people become oppressed economically, socially, because they live outside the society. Nima now works as a political advisor for the party and says he has never felt any bias against him. In fact, Nima says that the Sweden Democrats appreciate his efforts more than his old party, the Social Democrats. While that sounds nice and all, the one thing that I keep thinking is that if the Sweden Democrats had been running Sweden in 1987, when Nima and his family arrived as refugees, they might not have been admitted. So I ask him, what does he think about that? You know, I sit in the city council now, and we take a lot of decisions about a lot of stuff. I don't think, like, when I take a decision, how would this impact me? I don't think like that about other issues, and I don't think that about migration either. You know, in politics, you have to think about the entire society and the future. But don't you think you would have haven't even gotten to this position if you weren't admitted 
or yeah. as refugees, but as refugees back then. That's true. That's a fact. Yeah. But does that mean that I should support a policy that is dangerous for the Swedish society? Dangerous? In what sense is it dangerous? Because we have today like segregated areas mm-hmm. where there is a lot of people who are discontent. If you ask them like, where do you come from? They say Palestine, they say Iraq. Nobody says Sweden. This view has not endeared him to other Swedes with an immigrant background. Professor Kamali, his fellow Iranian Swede who we just talked to earlier, says Nima is giving immigrants a dubious message. As far as you are supporting the white racist structure of European societies, you are welcome. But the day you take a stance against racism, you have to just move. Nima brushes off this criticism. He calls himself a realist. People who come to a new country have to recognize that becoming a part of that country is a long way because uh, the culture is like the most uh, difficult language to learn. It's very hard uh, to become a part of a country. So how does one become a part of that country? What does it mean to be a Swede? What being a Swede is just living in this country and being uh, grateful and happy to do that. Uh, Swedish culture is so much you can't describe it just with a few examples. You have to live it. And that's becoming harder to do for newcomers in Sweden. Surveys show that the number of Swedes supporting immigration is dropping. Meanwhile, the number of hate crimes against migrants is rising. Wow, that's that's something. Isha, this like this reminds me of the, some of the assumptions we make in the US about immigrants. We automatically assume that because they're immigrants they can't be nationalists. Yeah, and you know, Dev, it was really interesting exploring this story, you know, to see exactly how or why a refugee turns to the far right out of necessity and a lack of opportunities. wraps up today's episode of Shifting Borders. This episode, with friends like these, was reported by me, Isha Mithal, and my classmate, Dev Jaiswal. That's me! And we'd like to thank a few people for helping us with our stories. They include Miron Estefanos, Rina Gasalchi, Garantina Kraya, Vukvuksanovic, Alexander Boskovic, and Alexandra Paskalidu. Music in this episode by ABBA, Studio Etar, Tara Band, Armand Miftari, Kingsley Sage, Shakar Train Stranius, and Catch-22 Music. As well as Babel Orchestra, Barley Barsoon, and the Serbian Orthodox Choir Saint, Nikola Kavasila. Archive audio from NPR, BBC, NBC News, Cohavision, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, the Guardian, the Associated Press, Euronews, and Visit Sweden.
We'd like to thank our classmates and Professor Joanna Kakissis from our international reporting class for all their advice and all their help. And to anyone out there listening, thank you. <laughs> yes, thank you for joining us today. I'll hand over the mic to our series host, Luke Maurer, for the credits. Thanks, Dev and Isha. Shifting Borders is a podcast series created by the students of Princeton University's Spring 2021 International Journalism class. Our supervising producer is Joanna Kikissis, a Spring 2021 visiting Ferris professor of journalism. Our assistant producer is Francesca Block. An associate of Hindenburg Systems mixed our episodes, with additional mixing by Francesca Block on episodes 3, 4, and 5. McGraw Center's Ben Johnston helped us get this series online and onto a podcast platform. Juliana Wojtenko designed the podcast artwork. Eric Sutherland composed Supercontinental, which we used as the Shifting Borders theme music. Special thanks to Joe Stevens, Margot Bresnan, and Deborah Amos of the Princeton Journalism Program, as well as Kathleen Crown of the Humanities Council, for supporting student-driven projects like these. Even during a pandemic, when we had to do nearly all of our reporting remotely. We would also like to thank the many exceptional journalists from around the world who spoke to our class via Zoom this semester, and whose words of advice helped shape our stories. They include Ada Peralta, Lulu Garcia Navarro, Mark Lowen, Daniel Estrin, Martha Wexler, Sally Hayden, Daniel Trilling, Riham Alcusa, Andras Peto, Will Dobson, Jess Jang, and Derek Arthur. Our next and final episode, episode 5, is called Permanent Refuge. It's about temporary havens turning into something more. It's hosted by Sam Harshbarger and Sophia Winograd. I'm Luke Maurer. Thanks for listening. Thank you.